Amen. Good to see you today again, and it's always awesome to get together to look at God's Word, to worship Him, see what He has for us today. We are currently going through, to me, one of the most important series that we could ever do. It's two of the most important chapters, no doubt, in the entire Bible, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The reason they're so important, you have to put it in perspective, we follow Jesus. Well, Jesus lived, and then this is his last word to us after he had gone up into heaven. Now, at the time he wrote Revelation 2 and 3, he gave these messages to John to send to churches. The church had really started 60 years or so before this, and then for the, for the next 30 years or so, churches were being planted and the New Testament was being written and most of the New Testament had now been written about 30 years ago. And so here we are with an update. Here we are with Jesus saying, let's have a checkup. You've been doing church for 60 some years. You've had most of the teachings of the New Testament for 30 or so years. So how are we doing? Are you becoming what I envisioned? Are you becoming what I commissioned you actually to do? Now, Revelation 2 and 3 are the last words that Jesus speaks to the church until after it's all wrapped up in the end. So therefore, this checkup is super important for us because we've been doing church a lot longer than these seven churches had. But also, when we call ourselves church, what we are saying is Jesus is the head of the church. That's what scripture teaches. So if he is the head of the church and we are the church, it seems like it would make sense for us to listen to what he has to say about how we're doing. And that's why, for me, these two chapters are just so important. They're really gold to us as his church. So at first we looked at the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus is that great city that's down in the southern end of Turkey, right where the Mediterranean Sea meets the Aegean Sea, a big religious center. And he addressed that church. And he had some good things to say. He goes, man, you guys have your doctrine down solid. But he said, there's one thing that you're losing. And if you lose it, it will kill you as a church. And that is love. He told the Christians in Ephesus, if you have great theology and no love, I'm going to snuff you out. You'll be done. Pretty serious. Then he came to Smyrna, which is 50 to 60 miles north of Ephesus on the coast, beautiful coastal city, really one of the leading commercial centers of this era in the first century. And it was, they had a harbor and rivers coming into it. And it was really a a great place. But what Jesus had to say to that church is, I know you guys are starting to suffer and you're gonna suffer even more and you better just be ready for it. He said nothing bad about what they were doing because the suffering church is, it has a way of purifying you. It gets, keeps out the dead wood. And so he had that message 
you know, there in what today is called Izmir, still a major city in Turkey. Now, so the next city that we come to is Pergamos. It's another 50 miles or so north and a little bit inland in Turkey. And again, you can look at your Apple Maps and you can see where these churches are. Pergamos is today called Bergama, but you can find it on your map. But it's, it's a city that's inland, so it's a little bit more, culture is a little bit different in Pergamos. And he's saying, so I have a message for the leaders, the messengers to this church in Pergamos. Now, Pergamos was a fascinating place because since they're not on the coast, they can't do commercially what Ephesus and Smyrna could do. They're inland, but Pergamos was actually more of a resort community anyway, because although they weren't on the coast, they were up on top of a, of a little mountain range, and as a result, they very easily built fortifications around it. It was a safe place. The weather was much more mild than it was in other places when you're down at sea level. So Pergamos was a place, it also had natural hot springs, so people that really needed a break would go there. In fact, and there were a lot of temples as there were in all of these places, but you know, in, in Pergamos, uh, you know, uh, Caesar Augustus would come there and they had a temple for him because Caesar had a drinking problem. And so once a year, his wife would ship him off to Pergamos to dry out. And so it was a good place to get your health back. So man, the weather's getting bad. I'm getting hung over. Time to go there. And people from all over the world at that time would come there for a break. It's kind of like people that live here, but they also have a place out by Palm Springs. Like, or people who live in New York, but they have a place in Florida. Well, that's Pergamos. So it did really well because people liked to come there. One of the things that was there besides their natural hot springs and all of the other, the beauty that existed there, they were also where really the idea of having a hospital actually started. In, in Pergamos, it was a place where because of the influence of the hot springs, then they began to develop massages and things like that there. You could really go there and get full treatment. But they had a temple to um, you know, a, a Greek god, Asclepios, who was a god, the god of medicine. And his temple became a huge hospital. And it was like the most luxurious hospital in the world. Everyone would go there for healing. Asclepios, by the way, he, he, it, according to Greek mythology, he was delivered by cesarean section. His mom was dying. Somebody cut him open, took him out. He survived. And as a result, he became a surgeon. And so he was able to operate on people. He also knew how to use hallucinogenics and other things to make people better. Eventually, Zeus killed Asclepios because he raised a couple people from the dead. And Zeus goes, nah, we can't have that. And so he ended up dying. But they built a temple. By the way, Asclepios, if you see the ancient pictures of him and there's remains of his temple there, um, he was a, seen as a guy with a walking stick that had a serpent wrapped around it. He used snakes a lot in his treatment. Now, I know you thought that 
in our medical field today that when they have a serpent on the stick, that that was from Moses and, you know, putting up the serpent in the wilderness. But actually, it's way more likely to come from Asclepios, this Greek. And I'm not like, don't freak out about it. It's just a snake. But that was, people would come there. Their hospital slash temple was pretty interesting when you read about it. And you can still, there are places that you can go there. One of the things that they did after giving you a massage and sitting in the hot baths and things like that, you would go down in these tunnels and they had, um, they dug out holes above the tunnels. And as you were going through the tunnel, there would be people with sexy voices saying, you're so beautiful. Sorry, I don't do sexy voice for a little bit. <laughs> you are a valuable person. You are so important. People love you. You're special. And you're going through that, and you're like, wow, I do feel better. And then they would go down into, they had a theater there, and they would put on like a cheesy play, like it was like, it was an ancient Hallmark channel, where you go and you're like, oh, this story makes me feel better. And then their final thing that they would do is, and the reason he had a serpent on his stick, he would use snakes sometimes in his treatment, but you would go lay in this dark room and all these snakes would be crawling around. It was kind of an ancient version of shock treatment, really. It's like, whoa, it might help you. It might make a difference. And so these snakes would crawl all over you. And of course, sick people are coming there and having a snake crawl on you might kill you just from fear. They weren't poisonous snakes. But a lot of this other stuff could get to you. So the temple had a back door, kind of like hospitals today, where if somebody dies in the hospital, they don't bring them out front. They ship them downstairs and take them away at night. So they had a back door where they'd haul all the dead bodies out. And if you just stood there and watched this hospital, you'd be like, wow, this place is great. They're so successful. So that's Pergamos. Now, the name Pergamos means parchment. Probably why, we don't know if they made parchment there, but um, there's no record of that. But Pergamos had the biggest library at that time in the ancient world. Um, Because if people come there for a vacation, you want to read, right? Just like we used to always, when we would go on cruises, it's been quite a while since we went on a cruise, but they always have a library. Because, you know, you can only sit on a boat so long before you get bored. And so I would always bring a bunch of Pastor Chuck's books and stuff like that and stick them in there that people could read them. But in Pergamos, they had a 200,000-volume library. Can you imagine, in the first century, collecting 200,000 books? It was pretty impressive. But again, this is a luxury community where people come to heal, and hey, nothing like reading a good book to do that. Now, that library, it ended up, Mark Antony ended up taking it, and he needed a, he, he forgot to buy a present for his girlfriend, Cleopatra, so he gave her this 200,000-volume library. She took it off to Alexandria in Egypt, and you probably learned in your history classes that the biggest library in the world was in Alexandria in Egypt. Well, all those books are still overdue in Pergamos, because <laughs> that's where it came from. So here's, that's the scene. Here's Pergamos. Now let's see what Jesus 
says to this church that's in such such a fascinating area. To the angel of the church, verse 12 of Revelation chapter 2, to the angel or the messenger of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Sharp two-edged sword. Now, in each of these letters, Jesus chose one of the descriptions of him that you see in chapter one. And in this case, he chooses this. Now, if somebody's coming in with a sharp two-edged sword, that means he's going to make a difference. Some, something's going to get cut. There's going to be a clear division that's made. A guy in our church who's an incredible stonemason just made me this incredible two-edged sword. It's like, I was going to carry it up here, but it's too heavy. But, but it's like, that's what he's saying. Okay, you ready for this? I'm coming, and I'm going to draw a line down the middle. Be prepared. So he said, that's, that's who I am. I know your works, in verse 13. Now, again, as we've said before, and he always says, I know your works. The word's gone. It doesn't mean I know how many good works you're doing. It just means I know what you're doing, period. It's what you do for a living. This is how you live. I see it. I know it. And he said, and I know where you live. You might go, uh-oh. But what he's saying is, Pergamos is an interesting and challenging environment because he says, where Satan's throne is. Now, some people thought this was a reference to in one of the temples there, uh, there was a temple of Zeus where there's this huge throne that's supposedly where Zeus rules. But as far as he's concerned, it's Satan's throne. He isn't, Jesus doesn't say, you know what, I'm the king of Pergamos. No, he goes, actually Satan's the king of Pergamos. You better understand that or life is going to disappoint you incredibly. I get where you live and I know what it's like and I don't have high expectations for the area in which you live. It's challenging, it's difficult. You hold fast to my name and you didn't even deny my faith in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He said, some of you have already paid the price. This guy Antipas, which we know nothing else about other than this reference, was one guy who was martyred. Now, the Greek word for witness is the, is the word martyr, martyros in Greek. So originally, martyr just meant a witness. But as Christians, as Christianity developed, martyr became a person who was actually martyred. So you didn't witness without ultimately getting treated horribly and killed. So, but he's saying, some of you guys have hung in there even through that. But one martyr from this church, and he names them, and they're like, oh yeah, those were the days. But, verse 14, I do have a few things against you. Whenever Jesus has a few things against you, you better listen. Because there are always things that will challenge your very existence. I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also, connected to that, are those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. He's going back to the story back in the book of Numbers where Balaam was a prophet of God 
And a Moabite king, Balak, tried to bribe him and said, look, I'll pay you good money if you can get God to curse Israel. And he tried, but it just wouldn't come out. But ultimately, in the end, you find out in Numbers 31 that Balaam went to Balak and said, I can't curse them. But he goes, look, let me tell you, all you need to do is you need to send the hot Moabite chicks down there, and those guys are going to sucker for it, and you win. It's everybody's together. You're going to be absorbed by the culture will embrace you when they see your attractive women. And as a result, the children of Israel, it says, were drawn into all kinds of idolatry because Balaam very cleverly told them, all you need to do, they'll compromise once you give them the opportunity. And so he's saying there are people there in Pergamos that are leading people into this kind of compromise. And then in using also the Nicolaitans, we talked about them a little bit before. The Nicolaitans, there are some people who looked, back, looked at this word and said, it's, you break it down etymologically, Nike, like Nike means victory and, and laity is the people or laos is the people. And so as a result, this is a church hierarchy and structure that says the leaders rule over the people. And there are references in church history to some things like that. But the earliest references say that the Nicolaitans came from a guy named Nicholas of Antioch. And I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago. Back in Acts chapter 6, when the church was just forming, and they said, we need some deacons who can kind of help run things and keep things going. And they listed seven guys who were filled with the Spirit and had a heart to serve the Lord and everything. The first one listed was Stephen. And then there were six other guys. The last one listed was Nicholas of Antioch, who was a proselyte who had then become proselyted to Judaism and then had become a Christian. So... The church history tells us as early as late first century, early second century, that this Nicholas had compromised the faith partly as a result to, if you're like on the list of demons, and first you're all excited, woo, yeah, I made the top seven. And then number one gets stoned to death. You're like, maybe we better make some plans to make this a little less offensive. Stephen got up there, and some people even look at Stephen's message and go, you can tell he was a deacon and not an elder because he was really, he could be pretty blunt. He got, he got killed for it. So Nicholas started thinking, how can we make our faith a little bit more friendly? And he figured out right away that people don't object to spiritual stuff. They don't want you actually to say that someone literally rose from the dead. So he began to apparently, and the Nicolaitans promoted this in a huge way, the idea that it's all about a spiritual Jesus. It's not so much the real guy's really God. It's, it's that he had divine essence. And then some of them believed that Jesus wasn't even actually a person at all. He was just a spiritual presence. It led later, by the, by the second century, the Nicolaitans had developed into you know, a, a vast 
perspective on, you know, that here we look at all of life as being, it's really just the essence that matters. And, and the physical, not such a big deal. Now, obviously, that makes you a lot more popular. If you can just do whatever you want with your life, but as long as you have this spiritual essence that you're okay, who wants to, who wants to make somebody like that a martyr? You're like, oh, cool. We can get along with him. As long as he's saying, hey, you believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe, and everything is fine. And so it led by the second century into what was called Gnosticism, the primary you know, theological error in church history for the most part. Well, it started from Nicholas because of his pragmatism. So Jesus is saying, I saw what happened. Balaam tried to make things better by compromising and going, look, you can just, you can be connected culturally, it's fine. And then Nicholas, the same thing, going, no reason to make yourself a target. Just realize that all faiths can kind of get along and work together and we have ours and they have theirs and nobody gets hurt and nobody gets offended. Jesus seemed very concerned about this because in verse 16, he says, repent. Again, that word means you better change the way you're thinking, metanoia, meta meaning with or a developing change and noia meaning the mind. It's the idea that if you keep thinking the way that you're thinking with this compromise, it's going to destroy you. Start thinking fresh or else I will come to you quickly with my two-edged sword and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. He said, I'm the guy who's coming to you with a sword. And now he says, if you keep this compromise up, I'm going to come and I'm bringing a sword with me. I'm going to make a difference. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. If you can resist this, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Okay, remember the children of Israel were given manna when they were out in the desert and nobody would feed them and they didn't have sources for food. God took care of them. Why would he say this to people here where food was abundant? Well, that's a part of persecution. If you're being persecuted, if they think that you are offensive, if they think that you are a part of what's wrong with this world, then you can't get a job anymore. What are you going to do? You're like, man, I used to be a nurse at the great temple of Asclepion, and now they don't want me because I'm like, this is offensive to me. So what do you do? Everyone who lived in this city worked in the tourism industry. And if all of a sudden you're taking a stand against Satan and his throne, now it's hard. So he goes, I'll feed you. Don't worry about that. That's going to, I fed the children of Israel with manna and I have hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. There are several different possible explanations of this, but we know that in that era, in that area, 
they, one of the things they would do to be special was they would get a polished stone, a little white stone, and they would write an encouraging message on it. And they would give it to someone. And they would hang on to that. They would hold it with them and they would find that it was encouraging. We kind of do, I mean, that's what greeting cards are in a lot of ways. Um, or I, you know, I had a friend who gave me a, a stone that I have on my desk and it, it says trust on it. The solidness of a stone, the value of trust. It's like, it's a good reminder when I see it. I have another stone at, at my desk at home that one of my grandkids gave me and it's encouraging too. It says, everybody must get stoned, Dylan. <laughs> that encourages me when I realize people are gonna be throwing rocks at us. But he goes, I'm gonna be there and I'm gonna take care of you. And so then he goes on to the church at Thyatira that we'll see in a couple weeks. Well, I can certainly read this and say, boy, I see what the problem was there. And I wish I could pretend that it's not a problem that the church has today, but I can't pretend that. Because the truth is, and really the message that Jesus has for this church is, you are to stand out as being distinct and different from the world in which you live. Now, at the same time, he was also letting them know, if you are faithfully who you're supposed to be, it's going to cost you. You are going to possibly be martyred. And, and with that being the case, are you prepared for that? Do you understand that the only power that you have as Christians is that you offer a different worldview than the world is offering? And the great danger that you have is cultural appropriation where the church becomes so much like the world that you can barely tell the difference? Yeah, it, it works well if you're just looking at, well, look at how many people like this. We are always tempted to say, how can we make the church more relevant? And why do we say that? Because the truth is, the more relevant our church becomes, the more people it will attract. And that's certainly true. But is that what Jesus wants from them? There's a reason why he tells them, hey, I'm coming with a knife. I am going to cut down the middle, those who are representing me and those who aren't, and their issues were, and again, you understand it, that, hey, you're right, Balaam, this is way easier. This is kind of cool, and, you know, I met the love of my life when we went to that, you know, that dance with the, you know, with the people from, you know, the Midianites. So it's like the Moabites. So it's like, or, boy, that first deacon got killed for preaching. Look at what we do now. People like us. We've actually become more friendly. We've become more seeker friendly. We're making our church a place that actually attracts people. How could that be wrong? Well, it's no problem if you don't have Jesus saying that that's not the way you're supposed to do it, that that is actually the opposite of that. And let's face it now, the reason people try to culturally appropriate is because we think that the more we can draw people to the church, the more we are doing a great work of God. 
But I will ask you, what happened in the first century? Why did Jesus, there are none of these seven churches that Jesus wrote to where he said, you know what, I want to tell you, first of all, your numbers are up. Great job. He doesn't seem to be impressed. But again, if, and there are people who misquote scripture, misunderstand it and say, you know, Paul said, you know, I've become all things to all men that by all means I might win some. Well, if you read that verse in the original, it doesn't say all means. And the some, the implication is some, not many. He didn't, Paul didn't adapt to culture. Paul, what he's talking about there is, I gave up my own cultural prejudices so that I would talk to people who I thought were disgusting. He wasn't saying, I found so many great methods that would allow me to do God's work. And you you can sometimes look at Christianity today and think, man, it looks a lot like the great hospital in Asclepios. It looks like, wow, we can get all great therapy and, and we get great encouragement and oh, there's so much to read and there's so much. And it's like, that's exactly the opposite of what he's doing. If in fact you judge God's effectiveness in the church by how big we are, then what does that say about Jesus? He at one point spoke and and fed loaves and fishes to like 17,000 people. And then he did it to another, you know, four to 8,000 another time. Preached to lots of people. In the end, his followers were dwindled down to 120 by the upper room. And then a few people cheering as he goes into the city. And then as he's hanging on the cross, how many followers does he have? Man, it's his mom, a couple of her friends, and John. Everybody else had bailed. So if, in fact, I'm going to say, wow, there's a lot of people here today. I must be doing something good. Instead, I should be a little more suspicious. Like, man, maybe I haven't been blunt enough if more people are coming. But it's absolutely ridiculous to think that I know better than Jesus. And like Paul, who went and planted churches all across Europe, and then in the end, he's in prison, and he has like no friends, and churches aren't supporting him, and he's written half the New Testament, and yet he's just got a couple of guys with him in jail, and they're depressing him. And what happened? Why did he not experience spiritual success? Well, this is what spiritual success looks like. Now, you go, but what about the Great Commission? Aren't we supposed to go take the world for Jesus? It doesn't say that. He does does say to go into the world and preach the gospel. But think about the final, the last Great Commission that we have in Acts 1-8 where Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, said, you will receive power, dynamic, after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my martyros. You will be my martyrs. Not you will be people who get a bunch of attention. Not you will draw all men, you know. No. He's saying, you're called to be martyrs. That's the message of the Great Commission. And Who in the world, now, all over the world, there are, like we talked about last week, there are Christians all over the world who are literally being killed for their faith. 
Do we think that that's because they don't have enough Christian movies? Do we think that it's because they haven't learned to be hip and cool and have music that relates to the culture? Or is there something going on here that Jesus is hinting at that, hey, when people are drawn to you and when you are deciding how to do church based on what's going to be attractive, I'm coming with a sword. That's not the way that it's supposed to be. Now, again, I, I would, I, I'm kind of, you know, a part of me is certainly, you know, with Nicholas of Antioch. Let's just not make people mad at us. Okay, let's just fly under the radar. Let's just not make waves. And yet, everything I read in the entire New Testament and everything that I read from Jesus says specifically this. What he is saying here, he hasn't changed his tune at all. If you are being faithful, you are going to suffer. His image of the church is not of this great growing, that whole idea of the church growing, growing, growing and take over the world. That's not from Jesus. That's actually from people, post-millennialists, who teach that if we get big enough, then Jesus will return. No, we know it's going to be bad until the end. Jesus made that clear. And when it looks like it's all over, boom, he's going to come and he's taking care of things. You don't like that? I'm sorry. I mean, I, trust me, there are plenty of churches you can go where they'll just pat you on the back and whisper sweet things into your ears and you can let the snakes crawl around you and think that this really worked. The church, according to the Bible, is not show business. It is not like, how can we use the culture in order to make something that's going to impress them? We've tried that for the last 100 years. Everything that we do ends up being a really cheesy Christian version of what the world is doing. You know, and that's, and one thing my granddaughter Sadie was over last night and we like to, we'll look for the lowest rated movie that we can find. And then we'll watch it and see what bad acting looks like. And they're usually Christian movies. And it's like, there you go. Church is not show business. It isn't. It is never, if, if you think that Christian is entertainment, smoke and mirrors, lights, and look at all the people, Jesus would be like, I don't even recognize that as a church. Church is also just not a big library. It's not a place where you can learn enough information. That's not what it is either. Church is not a place for you to come and get well. It's not a place of therapy and healing. It's fine that there are places that do that. That's not the role of the church. The church is the place where you come and you commit your life to Jesus Christ and Jesus teaches you how to live and he teaches you how to die. And that's it's that simple. And that's what he's, he's just trying everything he can to communicate this to Pergamos because they're running the risk of becoming the coolest, hippest church in the city of Satan, in Satan's world. The church that Satan likes to, yep, I sometimes go to church. It's that one, Pergamos, that's where I would go. That's not who we are. That's not who he is. And it's so, and I get, and I understand the whole attractional model for church. 
Because the truth is, every one of us wants to belong. I want to be somewhere where I feel like, wow, this is home. I really belong here. Now, I'm sure you've, if you've been a Christian for very long, you've had several churches where you went and you felt like you belonged for a while. And then you didn't. The truth is, in this world, in this life, get used to it. This isn't the place where you belong. Our citizenship is in heaven. We do the best we can while we are here, but we want to be faithful representatives of who Jesus is, and that may make us a target. You don't need to go out of your way to be a target. It will happen naturally. Sooner or later, we will run counter to our culture unless we sell out and we become a reflection of an antique version of our culture. We start doing things that our culture was doing long ago, and we're like, yeah, this is kind of cool. This is a great compromise. Church in Pergamos, Jesus goes, I'm coming with a sword, man. You are destroying everything that you're supposed to be. You are losing your distinctness because you're trying to placate the culture. You're trying to use cultural appropriation and letting the synagogue of Satan tell you how to do church. And he goes, I'm coming. And you're not going to hear me. But when I come, boom, this is going to happen. This church is gone. Here are three cities that we've looked at so far. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos. They were the three prominent cities in Turkey for the Roman Empire. And the choice always was, are you willing to suffer? Or do you want to be comfortable and die? Personally, it's convicting for me because I think how much of what I think of church is really just what our culture tells me church should be. That it's not like, well, if I did this, then people may leave, or if I said this, then people may get offended, or if I said, and it's like every, every day, every week, I have to ask myself, what are you willing to lose? Are you willing to have people be offended and leave, but at least know that you tried to tell them the truth? So if you're here today and you're offended, there are plenty of other places where you won't be. I have no problem with that. But if what I'm supposed to do is to represent Jesus, and if our church is supposed to be a place that represents his heart, then we need to expect it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be comfortable. And the day may come when we have to choose between doing what placates people or doing what's right and what represents him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this letter that we really don't like hearing. We would hate it if we got this letter and you were giving us these warnings, and yet we have got this letter, and you are giving us these warnings. Lord, may we be faithful May we get over our addiction to approval. May we get over our addiction to show business. May we get over our addiction to being cool. May we instead just live our lives representing you well, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. 
And may we be ready to accept the fact that we will not belong here ever, that we'll survive here because we know that this world is not our home, that you have another world prepared for us. Help us not to be desperate to fit in, but help us to embrace the opportunity to be different for you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.